Well, good morning, everyone. I appreciate you guys letting me be here. For those of you that don't know me, um, I flew down here uh, from the other campus, so I'm not sure if, uh, if anyone told you who was speaking today, but I'm Jake Brock. I'm uh, Brother Marty's son, Brother Marty Brock. He's been here several times, um, maybe filling in for Rob, doing, doing some revivals, and so I'm honored and privileged to be with you today. Our passage of Scripture we're going to be reading from today is Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. I invite you to turn to that. And as you're turning, as I was kind of thinking about coming down to your two campuses uh, this week, I remembered the story told. It was about three gentlemen. I can't quite recall their names. I think their names were Trenton, Trey, and Rob, I believe. And it was three gentlemen, and they were approaching retirement age, and unfortunately they were widowers. All their um, better halves had passed on. But they decided they wanted to re- uh, retire together. They were all really good buddies, and they wanted to retire together. So they began doing the research and figure out where they wanted to go to, and they found this secluded island called Paradise. And they decided that that might be if they did the research and found out that, man, they had the best fishing, they had the best hunting, they had the best beaches, they had the best restaurants. And they said, we think that's the place. So they made it a plan, circled the date on their calendar, and that day arrived, and they flew out to Paradise, and they landed there at the airport. When they landed, a police officer approached them and said, gentlemen, gentlemen, I want to welcome you to Paradise. You're going to have a great time here. We've got the best fishing. We've got the best hunting We've got the best golf, we've got the best beaches, we've got the best restaurants. You're really, really going to enjoy it. And there's only one law in all the land, and that is do not step on a duck. Well, Rob kind of looked at the other two and back at the officer and said, well, officer, we weren't planning on stepping on any ducks, so I think we'll be okay. Well, much to their dismay, when they exited the airport, there were ducks literally everywhere. And man, oh, Trent, he was kind of the clumsiest of the three, and he lasted lasted about five minutes and stepped on a duck, and I might have sugarcoated this a little bit at the other campus, but I'm not going to here. That police officer, they saw him off in the distance, and he was dragging a woman with him. He got closer and closer, and they discovered that that woman he was dragging, man, she was, I said less attractive at the other campus, but man, she was just ugly, okay? She was just an ugly woman. And she, uh, that officer brought, brought that woman up to Trenton, handcuffed her to him, and said, Sir, you stepped on a duck. Your punishment is you've got to spend the rest of your life here in paradise with this woman. And so, man, Trey and Rob looked at each other, and they said, Man, we don't like them ugly women. We've got to be careful. And so um, Trey made it several, several months. They did very, very well, but Trey made it several months. And man, he woke up one morning, he was just a little groggy, wasn't quite as sharp as he normally is, and he stepped out his front door and stepped on a duck. Here come that same police officer, and man, he was dragging an uglier, older woman up to Trey. And man, Trey was so disappointed when the handcuffs went on, and the officer said, Sir, you stepped on a duck. Your punishment is you got to spend the rest of your life here in paradise with this woman. So Rob, man, he said, man, I do not like them ugly women. I'm going to be super, super careful for the rest of my life. So, man, he had a new hip in place. He was dodging ducks right and left. He was just doing so great. And he made it years and years and years, never stepped on a duck. And one morning he woke up and he looked off in the distance, and here come that police officer. It looked like he was was dragging a woman. So Rob kind of 
kept watching, and she got, they got closer and closer, and, and as they got closer and closer, Rob discovered that, man, this woman was beautiful. I mean, she looked like Miss America. She looked like Miss Donna reincarnate, okay? I mean, she was just a beautiful, beautiful woman. And, man, that police officer drug her up to Rob and slapped the handcuffs on. And that man, I mean, oh, Rob, he just fell in love all over again. I mean, he was just right there, instant in love, and he just melted. He said, oh, my gosh, what have I done to deserve this? And the woman said, I don't know about you, but I stepped on a duck. (laughs) I say all that to say this. I am not a preacher like my dad or like Rob. I know you've heard some great, great sermons come from this uh, pulpit here. But I am not a preacher. I'm going to do my best not to cry, and I'm going to do my best to be um, speedious in the delivery of this sermon. But I am not. But um, I am very honored, and I feel lucky to be here. But when you leave today, you might kind of think you stepped on a duck. But I'm going to do my best nonetheless. Let's read Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. A spiritual mentor of my father, his name was Lester Lundy. He was my dad's pastor. He was just a great, great man of God. And one of his pastimes was poetry, and he wrote a beautiful, beautiful poem entitled, I'm Thinking of a City Far Away. So along with our passage of Scripture, I'm going to steal Brother Lundy's uh, title to his poem and use it for the title of the sermon this morning, I'm Thinking of a City Far Away. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 tells us to set our affection on things above. Think about heavenly things. And I believe when we do that, it accomplishes a few things for us. Number one, if you're not a believer, it lets you know what you're missing out on in all of eternity. For us that are believers, man, it just gives us a great hope that in the end everything's going to be okay. I worked with a young lady one time, and she just had a worrisome spirit about her. If one little task went wrong at work, man, it was the end of the world. It was just bad news. And she would come to me, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the first thing I would always say to her is, it is going to be okay. And 100% of the time, that always made it worse. But in the end, it always was turned out to be okay. And I'm thankful that when we set our affection on things above, that it shows us everything in the end is going to be okay. The second thing it does is it gives us motivation to run our Christian race with patience and to run it worthy of our calling. So when I'm thinking about a city far away, I'm thinking about a lot of things of the city. But the first thing I think about, I'm thinking about the peace of the city. The Institute for Economics and Peace estimates that it costs each U.S. taxpayer about $7,000 for violence containment. So there's a lot of violence in our country today. And just to keep it at its current level, it's costing each and every one of us, the taxpayers, about $7,000 thousand dollars there's less and less and less peace in the world today can i get an amen on that but man when i've turned towards heaven i think i'm thankful it's going to be a very very peaceful place i'm going to read uh, i'm going to jump around revelations quite a bit you don't have to turn with me i'm just going to read several passages of scripture here it says and god shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death 
neither sorrow nor crying. I'm going to pause right there on that nor crying and tell you another reason I'm thankful to be here today, and that's that I had nursery duty back at our home church. And there's two things I don't do in the nursery. I don't change dirty diapers, and I don't hold crying babies. So I'm thankful when I turn to heaven, there's not going to be any crying babies in heaven. They're not going to be crying. And the passage continues, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. There shall be no night there, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. That last passage there says, Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. It's hot outside today, but man, when we get to heaven, we don't even have to wear sunscreen. We don't have to worry about the heat anymore. Isn't that a good promise in Jesus? Thank you. The application, you say, well, how can I apply that in thinking about the peace to my current life as I live here down on earth? Well, man, I think heaven's a peaceful place. I think we just need to reach up to heaven, grab a little bit of that peace, pull it back down here to earth, and bring some peace to those around us. The Bible says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. But not only am I thinking about the peace of heaven, I'm thinking about the presence. So why do you get a present in life? You usually don't get a present for anything you've done. You get it simply for who you are, just for being you. Christmas time in the Brock household was probably just like it is in most of your households. As Christmas Day was approaching, my parents would come to us and say, better start being good. I was kind of the honorary one. Better start being good. Santa Claus won't come and visit you. Better start being good. Santa Claus won't come and visit you. Now, there was probably one difference. Um, most, of, uh, most of you could probably teach that Santa, he's a chubby guy with a red coat, rosy cheeks, and a long gray beard. Well, Santa Claus in the Brock household, he wore Wranglers, had jet black hair, a tan, and dimples. That was my father, obviously. But you know what? Christmas Day came each and every year, and I look back, it didn't matter whether I was good or whether I was bad. Santa visited me every year. And you know why? Because who my mama was. Mama made sure that Santa visited me. And you know, there are certain presents in heaven. I'm going to read a few of them off here. And you don't have to do anything other than accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior to get these presents. You just get them simply for being a child of God. Man, there's walls of jasper. There's streets of gold. There's gates of pearl. There's a crystal river. There's a tree of life with 12 kinds of what I believe to be just beautiful, beautiful fruit. And then there's foundations of precious stone. I, I did a little bit of research to figure out what one brick of these precious stones would cost. There's 12 of them listed. There's 12 different foundations. But I did, I did some research on some of these stones. A few of them are topaz, emerald, sapphire, and jasper. I can't pronounce the rest, so I'll leave those unsaid. But there are some beautiful, beautiful stones in heaven. One brick of the first stone I researched cost, would cost $1,183. Just one brick. The second stone, $1,950. The third stone I researched, $7,275. There is just some beautiful, beautiful presents that await us in heaven. Billy Graham says that heaven will be paradise. Whatever is necessary for our happiness and ultimate fulfillment, it will be 
in heaven. So I don't know exactly what all is going to be in heaven, but if it's necessary for our happiness and our ultimate fulfillment, I believe, according to Billy Graham, that it's going to be there. So I don't know if there's going to be any horse riding or calf roping in heaven, but if it's necessary for our ultimate happiness and fulfillment, there'll be horse riding and calf roping in heaven. I don't know if there's going to be golf in heaven. I don't know if there's going to be shopping in heaven, ladies. But if it is necessary for your ultimate happiness and fulfillment, Dr. Billy Graham says it will be there. I called Brother Rob yesterday, and I said, Rob, what are you doing? And he said, I'm watching Gunsmoke. And he just sounded happy as a lark. And so I don't know if Gunsmoke is going to be on the television in heaven, but if it is necessary for Rob's ultimate happiness and ultimate fulfillment, Watching gun smoke on television will be in heaven. My dad will be right there watching it with him, by the way. So not only am I thinking about the peace of heaven and the presence of heaven, but, I, but I'm also thinking about the prizes in heaven. Now, you get a prize for something you do, and it's a great promise of God to know that, that working for him down here on earth, we can earn prizes in heaven. There's five specific ones listed in Scripture. I'm not going to go in great detail on them, because I would probably absolutely um, butcher the doctrine. Brother Rob would have to come up here and give a rebuttal sermon on what I've preached today. But I will touch on them real quickly. Number one, there's a, there's a crown of um, incorruption. And that's for those that faithfully run the Christian race. Number two, there's a crown of rejoicing. That's the soul winner's crown. Those that faithfully lead to others to Christ. Then there's a crown of life. Those, that's for those that have endured severe hardship, temptation, or even martyrdom for the kingdom of God. Then there's the crown of righteousness. I like this one. It's just for those, all those that love is appearing. Then there's the crown of glory. That's generally thought of as a minister's crown, maybe reserved for Brother Rob and other ministers of the gospel. But one study I said, that might be even reserved for some Sunday school teachers or some servant lay people in the church, maybe even some deacons. So those are the five crowns. I'll let Rob tell you more about those. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says this, though, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Dr. Robert Jeffers, um, pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, said that good or bad is better translated like this. Let me reread that verse. That he may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be something that is eternally enduring or something that is eternally worthless. So as we live our Christian lives this week, let us focus on that. Let us, let us carry out our task and lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, stuff that is eternally enduring. Not only am I thinking about the peace and the presence and the prizes, And let me just kind of summarize where we're at right now. That kind of gives us an idea of what heaven's going to be like in the physical nature, kind of what we're going to experience in heaven. Dr. Adrian Rogers says, Everything that the loving heart desires, everything the incredible mind of God conceives, and everything the incredible hand of God can can create, that's what's going to be in heaven. Let me reread that. Everything the loving heart desires, everything the loving heart of God desires, everything the incredible mind of God can conceive, and everything the incredible hand of God can create. That's what heaven's going to be. 
Paul said in Philippians 4, verses 21 and 23, he said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, for I am in a strait betwixt the two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. Again, Dr. Rogers helped me out on the Greek on that, which is far better. That's superlative upon superlative upon superlative. This is how the Greek actually reads. I have a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far, very much far, much more better. The Apostle Paul basically couldn't even put it into words how much greater heaven was going to be than living here on earth. This is probably the best way I know how to put it with the help of Scripture, how great heaven is going to be. I believe when Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to life, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and completed God's work in raising from the grave, I believe there was a special inheritance, there was a special party for Christ in heaven. I believe God laid up some special treasures in heaven for Christ. And this is what the Bible teaches in Romans eight sixteen and 17. It says, For the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. I think God laid up for Jesus a special, a special prize in heaven. And man, we are joint heirs with Jesus. We get a piece of that pie. Amen. And I'll even do you one better. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. He said, he didn't say I go to a prepared place. I believe that heaven was beautiful from the foundation of the world. But he said, I go to prepare a place. So I like to think of Jesus having a nail in one hand and a hammer in the other. And man, each and every day, he's making heaven better and better and better. He's preparing for us a place. So when we think about the peace, the presence, and the prizes, how can we apply that to our lives? Well, the scripture says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's just get busy working for the Lord. Amen. Not only am I thinking about the peace, the presence, and the prizes of heaven, but I'm thinking about the prayer of heaven. And I want to be clear on this. I believe 100% we will have direct communication with God in heaven. But if I was to ask this congregation this morning, how many of you have prayer requests? Somebody in your life or maybe even yourself that has an emotional, a spiritual, a physical need that needs met. I would say probably without question, every hand truthfully should go up in this congregation. If it doesn't, Pastor Rob would probably disagree and say, hey, why don't y'all start praying for my new hip? But I believe that if I ask that same question in heaven this morning, how many of you guys in heaven have an emotional, a spiritual, a physical need, or somebody you know that you need prayed about? I don't believe one hand would go up because I believe that there are absolutely no cares in heaven. First Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. That's a great passage of Scripture, and I'm so thankful for God, to God for the medium of prayer. But man, I'm looking forward to that day when I just don't need it anymore. I just don't need it anymore. The great hymnist William Wofford in 1845 penned these words as the last stanza to his hymn. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share. 
Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I'll view my home and take my flight. This robe of flesh I'll drop and I'll rise to seize the everlasting prize. And I'll shout while passing through the air, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. I'm thankful. I'm looking forward and I'm thinking about the peace of heaven. I'm thinking about the presence, the prizes, and the prayer of heaven. But man, I'm thankful and I'm looking forward and I'm thinking about the people of heaven. I think there's going to be some really, really cool people in heaven Brother Rob shared with me just on my way between campuses that that um, he had preached several, several funerals in the past few weeks, and I believe that several of those people will be awaiting us in heaven, and I'm looking forward to seeing them, friends and family of my own, and I just think there's some other cool people that are going to be in heaven. I've done some research. I believe the great Abraham Lincoln, former president, I believe he was a born-again child of God. I believe he's going to be in heaven. I'm looking forward to seeing him, looking forward to seeing one of my golfing heroes. Mr. Payne Stewart, he died in a plane crash several years ago, but I believe he was a born-again child of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, man, I'm looking forward to seeing them. It's going to be a great, great reunion up in glory land. So how can we apply this to our lives? Well, the Bible says we're surrounded, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Man, I believe they're all up there. They're cheering us on as we run our Christian Christian race down here on earth. I believe they're just cheering us on. They're cheering us on. They're cheering us on. So what's the Bible tell us to do as they're cheering us on? It says, lay aside every weight and sin that easily besets us, and let us run the race with patience. But not only am I thinking about the people, I'm thinking about one person in particular, and that's the priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I am looking forward to going to heaven just so I can worship Jesus and thank him for all he's done for us. The Apostle John in Revelations wrote these words, And I beheld... And I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Let me reread that. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You know how we say that in Prior, Oklahoma? You know how many people that is? That's a bunch of them, amen? That's a bunch of people. And the angels were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such that are in the sea and that are in them, heard I saying, that is the creatures are saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So there's kind of four categories of groups that are worshipping in heaven. Man, I, and I don't know which one I'm going to be in when I get to heaven. I might be with the angels and I might be saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I might be with the creatures and say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. I might be with the four beasts and just look at those other two groups and say, You got it right, guys. Amen. Amen. I agree with you. Or I might just be like the four and twenty-four and might not be able to say anything. 
I might just fall down and worship him. So how can we apply that type of worship, thinking about the priest of heaven to our life here on earth? Man, why wait? Let's just worship him while we're right down here on earth. Why wait? So not only am I thinking about the peace of heaven and the presence and the prizes and the prayer and the people and the priest of heaven, but finally I'm thinking about the path to heaven. I'm thinking about the path to heaven. I encourage you to think about it this morning as well. So how can we get to heaven if we're not on our way already? It's straight through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My fa- I'm, I'm probably going to be in the minority on this, but my favorite sporting event of all time is the 1986 Masters Golf Tournament. I bet if I ask that this morning, I bet there's not one other person in here that that's their favorite sporting event. Probably a Final Four, maybe a National Finals Rodeo, or maybe a Super Bowl was probably yours. But mine was the 1986 Masters, and it is my favorite for a variety of reasons. Number one, the Masters always takes place at a beautiful setting, Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia. There's not one blade of grass out of place there. The flowers are in full bloom. It's just a breathtaking, breathtakingly beautiful piece of property. It's all, the Masters is also my favorite tournament because of the prize that the winner gets. They do award him a trophy, but the winner of the Masters golf tournament is always awarded a green jacket, kind of a green sport coat, and it's just a very unique piece of clothing. Very beautiful, though in its own right, has the little Masters logo insignia there on the there on the chest of the coat on the pocket there. It's just a really unique piece of clothing, just a very unique tradition to the Masters Golf Tournament. And I'm all, I'm, I also believe that the 86 Masters was one of my favorite sporting events, or my favorite by far, because of who won it. That was Jack Nicklaus. He was 46 at the time he won it. Most people, when he entered into the week, were saying, oh, Jack's kind of washed up. He wasn't on a lot of people's radar. He hadn't won a major golf tournament in six years. Most people said maybe he needed to start thinking about retirement or maybe even eyeing the senior tour in a few years. But I believe when we reflect back to the 86 Masters, that golf tournament was won on three holes. That's when Jack really seized the prize of winning that golf tournament on holes 15, 16, and 17 on the final day. And I believe as we reflect back on those, the gospel can be seen on how Jack played those golf on how Jack played those golf holes. We go to hole 15 and let me tell you what Jack Nicholas did. He he played a perfect golf hole. He hit a long straight drive right down the fairway. His second shot required a high arcing long iron into a green just over a small pond there. And Jack hit a perfect four iron onto the green. Then he had a very tricky putt that curved off to the right. Jack needed to hit a perfect putt, and he did. Jack hit a perfect drive. He hit a perfect second shot, and he hit a perfect putt, and he eagled that hole and really, really helped his chances of winning that golf tournament. Well, when I think of Jack's perfect hole, I'm thankful that Christ came 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect life. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we, yet without sin. 
Jesus came 2,000 years ago. I believe he was a perfect baby. I believe he was a perfect toddler. I believe he was a perfect child. I believe he was a perfect preteen. I believe he was a perfect teenager. I believe he was a perfect adult, young adult, and I believe he was a perfect adult. I believe Jesus was 100% without sin his entire life. So as I think about Jack's perfect hole, I'm thankful that Christ came and lived a perfect life. Next we go to hole 16. It's a short par 3, again over a small, over a pretty large pond there. Jack pulled out a 5-iron, and his son Jackie Nicholas was caddying for him that week. And another unique thing about the caddies is that I guess that they're required to wear an all-white uniform. It's just, again, something kind of peculiar to the uh, Masters Golf Tournament, just kind of a tradition. They're required to wear an all-white uniform. So Jack pulled that 5-iron out, and he hit it. And, man, it was going straight for the pin. And, Jack, and Jackie Nicholas, the caddy, said, be the right club. And what that means in golf terminology is, hey, ball, you're going in the right direction. If you're the right distance, this is going to be a good shot. So Jack, Jackie cries out, be the right club. Is that ball sailing through the air? Jack Nicholas knew it was, and he said, it is, son, it is. The ball landed about three feet away from the hole, and Jack tapped it in for a birdie and even advanced, further advanced his position in the golf tournament. Jack's confirmation that that was the right club, as I look back on Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, man, he had the right sacrifice for our sins. I'm going to try to get through this here. This is a parable, and it incorporates many biblical miracles that Jesus performed into something that he did for you and me. It's just kind of a modern-day parable that incorporates several of the miracles Jesus performed. It can be about you. It can be about me. It can be about any man, woman, boy, girl. I'm going to tell it in first person just to keep it simple. I had a sin debt I couldn't pay. I needed someone or something to help me pay it. I heard about Jesus. Heard he might be able to help me. So I went. Went to Jesus. There was a long line of people needing miracles. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. Very patiently waited. As I got closer and closer to the front, I began to overhear some of the conversations that were happening with the people in Jesus. Simon Peter's mother-in-law approached Jesus, a man she had a very, very terrible fever. Jesus just reached out and touched her hand, and that fever immediately left her. And she stood up, immediately felt better, huge smile came across her face, a couple of tears of joy, and she says, is that it, Jesus? Is that all I had to do to be healed? She said, that's, he said, that's it. It is finished. Then there was a deaf man, deaf man. He had a speech impediment. Man, Jesus just put his fingers in his ear. He spit, touched the man's tongue, and said, be open. Immediately, the man could hear crystal clear and speak crystal clear. The first clear words he ever spoke were, Jesus, is that it? Is that all I had to do? And Jesus said, that's it. It is finished. Then there was a woman with a blood disease. She just reached out and touched Jesus' garment, and that blood disease instantly left her. She stood up and celebrated and said, Jesus, is that it? Is that all that had to be done? And he said, that's it. It is finished. Then there were two blind men. Man, Jesus just went out and touched their eyes. They could instantly see. They started jumping up and down, celebrating, giving each other high fives. They were, they were very excited. They were pumped up. 
They turned back toward Jesus and Jesus, is that it? Is that it? Is that all that had to be done? And he said, that's it. It is finished. Then there was a, then there was a paralyzed man. His friends brought him in on a bed. Jesus said, arise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man stood up, again leaping for joy. And he said, Jesus, is that it? Is that all that had to be done? And Jesus said, that's it. It is finished. And then it was my turn, and I approached Jesus, and I said, Jesus, I need a miracle. I've got a sin debt that I cannot pay. I need somebody to help me with it. I was expecting the immediate response from Jesus, just like he had given the others, but I didn't get it. Instead, we traveled to a garden. And Jesus began to pray. He was under intense agony and stress to the point that he began to sweat drops of blood. I saw that and I said, Jesus, that's it. That's the payment for my sin. But he didn't say a word. One of his best friends came in, betrayed him with a kiss. Some soldiers arrested him. They publicly humiliated him. They spit on him. They pulled out his beard. And I said, Jesus, that's it. That's the payment for my sin. That's got to be it. That's got to be it. But he didn't say a word. They drug him off and whipped him 39 times with a hellacious whip. Blood began to pour from his back. And I cried out and I said, Jesus, that is it. You're pouring blood from your back. You're pouring blood from your back. That has got to be it. Nothing else needs to be done. But he didn't say a word. They placed a crown of thorns on his brow. They pushed it down. Blood began to spew down his face. I said, Jesus, that's it. You have paid my sin debt. That is it. That's got to be it. You can't take any more. But he didn't say a word. They brought him a cross, said, take it up, Golgotha. He carried that cross all the way up Golgotha. We got there. I followed. And I said, Jesus, that's it. You've carried the cross all the way up the hill. That's got to be the payment for my sin. It's got to be over with. This has got to come to an end. But he didn't say a word. They put nails on his feet. I said, Jesus, that's it. He didn't say a word. They put nails in his feet. I said, Jesus, that's it. He didn't say a word. He hung there for hours upon hours upon hours in excruciating, excruciating pain. I could tell the time of his death was getting very near. I had almost given up hope in one last plea. I said, Jesus, I need a miracle. With his hands stretched out, with his dying breath, he said, it is finished. Thank God that Christ's sacrifice was the right sacrifice for our sins. Back to the masters. Jack needed one more birdie out of the final two holes to win the golf tournament. He came to 17. He hit, hit his approach shot to within about 15 feet of the cup. He had a very, very tricky putt. Very, very tricky putt. He hit the putt. As the, as the putt approached the hole, he lifted up his putter 
putt dropped in the hole, and the commentator on the television said two words, yes, sir, yes, sir. Jack's victorious putt shows us Christ's victorious resurrection. He came up from the grave. Thanks be to God. Christ rose for several reasons. I won't go into all of them, but one of them is for our our justification. We needed somebody to make us right with God. Brother Rob has a beautiful, beautiful ranch. And if I, I'm not sure where he stands financially on it, but let's say he owes a little bit of money to the bank on it. And if I got out my checkbook and I wrote Rob a check, said, Rob, I'm going to pay off your ranch today, and I wrote him a check, that would be the payment for his ranch. But you know what? That check doesn't do any good until it's deposited in the bank. So why did Christ raise from the dead? Man, he, he made our payment on the cross, but he had to present that payment to God the Father And that secured our place in heaven. The Bible says he was the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Jack finished with what I call a routine par. He tapped in for par, and there was a great ovation. The fans were going wild. He put his arm around his son and made his way up to the beautiful clubhouse for the trophy presentation. They slipped on the green jacket, presented him the beautiful, beautiful trophy. And man, they weren't calling him washed up anymore. They weren't saying you need to retire. They were calling him the greatest golfer of all time, a great champion, a determined, focused, skillful golfer. When Christ comes, he's going to come victorious, but he's not coming like Jack. John wrote in Revelation, and I saw heaven open. And behold, and he didn't see a caddy wearing white. He saw a white horse. And he that sat upon him, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a champion golfer. He wasn't a champion cowboy. He was called faithful and true. And they didn't present him a trophy, but on his head were many crowns. And he wasn't wearing a green jacket. But he had a vesture, and it was dipped in blood. And they didn't call him the greatest of all time, but his name is called the Word of God. And he didn't have the little master's insignia on his coat pocket there. He didn't have champion calf roper written on his saddle. He didn't wear a champion bull rider belt buckle. But he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I am thankful for the path to heaven. The old hymn probably says it best. We ask these questions. Did Christ really come and live a perfect life? Listen to the old hymn. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Was his sacrifice enough? Was his resurrection enough? Listen to the old hymn. Lifted up, was he to die? It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Is he really coming back? Listen to the old hymn. 
when he comes, when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew, this song we'll sing. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Hallelujah! What a Savior! Hallelujah! What a Savior! I'm singing it today. I'm looking forward to singing it in heaven. Would you bow with me, please? As the instrumentalists come to lead us in a hymn of invitation, I'm looking forward to heaven. But maybe you're here today and you say, Jake, I really can't say for sure that if I died right now that I would go to heaven. I'm going to tell you real simple how to get there. Just say this prayer right after me. Just say it right now. Say it in your heart. You don't need to say it aloud. Just say it in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm turning from my sin. I'm repenting of my sins. I believe that you came, lived a perfect life. You died on a cross for my sins and you raised from the dead. I confess you now as the Lord of my life. I accept you as my Savior. In Jesus' name. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you said that prayer for the first time, would you just raise your hand up for me real quick? Just up and down real quick. If you said that prayer, thank you. Thank you. If you're here this morning and maybe this, maybe this word spoke to you differently, you said, man, Jake, I'm living. My priorities are out of whack. I'm laying up for myself treasures on earth, and I need to lay up for myself treasures in heaven. I want to set my affection on things above and not on things of this world. If you need to come reconsecrate your life to God and just say, Lord, I want to focus on heaven and laying up for myself, my, myself treasures there, would you come this morning and make that decision? Lord, I pray that you'll speak to all your servants here help us make decisions that you are calling us to make and it's in Jesus name Amen The altars are open for those who need to just come and pray come and lay the burdens down at the feet of Jesus here this morning whatever sorrow, whatever trouble, whatever trial that you're going through. The Lord asks us to have faith in him and to ask and believe in our hearts and he will give us those prayers. He will answer them. The altars are open for you as well.